The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Beloved, it is the Word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful, Lord, that we have Bibles that we can call our own. And we would ask now that You would be pleased to give us a grace that we would see that wherein we fail. Jesus, Your Son, on our behalf mightily prevails. We ask it in his glorious name. Amen. So many of y'all know of my great love for J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, six books and three volumes. Uh, In a sense, it would be four if we added the Silmarillion as the sort of genesis of the trilogy. But as sweeping as that uh, epic is, I'll always have a warm spot in my heart for The Hobbit. The subtitle of the book is drawn from Bilbo Baggins' own memoirs, There and Back again. The first chapter of The Hobbit is uh, entitled An Unexpected Journey. Now, The Hobbit, as you know, like The Lord of the Rings, is ultimately a travel narrative. Now, whether we are uh, on a journey with Gandalf and Bilbo as they go with Thorin Oakenshield and his band of dwarves on their way to reclaim the lonely mountain and 
all of that gold from that terrible evil dragon uh, smog, or we traipse through every danger imaginable with Bilbo's cousin Frodo and Gandalf as he leads him through the bowels of Middle-earth to Mordor uh, to Mount Doom to destroy the ring of power and discover the identity of the true king. And just as a side note, if that's a spoiler for you, what I just said, that tells me you haven't read the Lord of the Rings. And if you haven't read the Lord of the Rings, you know what you need to do? You need to go pray about that. <laughs> you need to go pray about that if you've not read the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but there, there, are, there are travel travel narrative. And our, our text this morning is part of the Lucan travel narrative that begins all the way back in Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 51 to 56. And I'm going to ask if you'll go ahead and turn there to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to read that. And I'm just going to go ahead and let you know, you're going to get your fingers loosened up because we're going to look at a few scriptures this morning. So we'll be turning around in, uh, in uh, the Bible there. So Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's kind of a, like a scene out of Lord of the Rings right there. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another uh, village. Now, this is actually uh, a, a Lucan travel narrative that is the fulfillment of a prophecy all the way back in one of Isaiah's servant songs. Now, I want you to turn back to the prophecy of Isaiah, or some might call it the gospel of Isaiah, chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, beginning at verse 4. And I want you to listen to this and see if you can see the connection. Isaiah 50, beginning at verse 4, we read, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He hears, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Now, in this prophecy, the Messiah is prophesied as one who will know and obey the word of the Lord. He will suffer great physical and spiritual anguish, but he will be vindicated by God, and he will bring rescue for those who receive him and retribution for those who reject him and go their own way. Now, that's the prophetic background to this 
parable here in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27, our text this morning. And this parable, the parable of the ten minas, the word is mina in the Greek, uh, this is one of a handful of what are called parousia parables in the New Testament. The parousia, the Greek word for the return of Christ. And there are a handful of these parables in the New Testament that are short stories about the return of Jesus. There is the parable of the nocturnal thief in Matthew 24, 42 to 44, and Luke 12, 35 to 40. The parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, 1 to 13. Or the parable of the doorkeeper in Matthew 13, 33 to 37, and Luke 12, 35 to 38. There's the parable of the good and wicked servants in Matthew 24, 45 to 51, and Luke 12, 45, uh, 41 to 46. There is the parable of the talents uh, in Matthew 25, uh, 14 to 30, and a similar parable, which is our text this morning, the parable of the ten minas in Luke 19, 11 to 27. Now, a parable, the Greek word is parabole. Uh, it's a short story of sorts, simple, but not simplistic. Usually one main point, and usually that point is about the reality of the kingdom and the nature of its king. And, and that's why I want to spend a few minutes with you this morning considering this parable under three points. The king they expected, the king God exalted, and the king is extravagant. The king they expected. Too many convoluted takes on this story exist. Like maybe it's a, a lesson on venture capitalism. There's nothing wrong with venture capitalism. I think we all should be thankful for it, but that's not what this parable is ultimately about. Uh, this story is not convoluted. Jesus had no time for a story that would distract his disciples. They were already distracted. In fact, Luke gives us a clue at the very beginning when he says, and I quote, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, two questions come out of those two causes. Question number one, what were the these things that they had been hearing? And number two, what was their expectation of the kingdom of God and its king? Now, destination Jerusalem was just in sight. The journey was almost complete. Uh, Jesus had prepared Peter, James, and John back in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36 on the Mount of Transfiguration as he pulled back his flesh, as it were, and was transfigured right in front of them, revealing that they were dealing with no ordinary man. They were dealing with God in the flesh. In the chapters that follow, he had warned them of the cost of following him, the rejection that would be his and would be theirs. I mean, we read of it also in John 15, where Jesus says, they hated me, they'll hate you. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. A servant is not above his master. He preached on the reality of the kingdom of God, teaching on prayer, warning them about Satan's opposition, exposing the legalistic self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. There were parables on the lost sheep, parable on the lost coin, a parable on the prodigal sons, because both of them, the younger and the older were indeed prodigal. It's really the parable of the running father, you, you know. Now, all this and more, uh, speaking to them uh, of, the, of the childlike spiritual nature of the kingdom, how we must come humbly uh, like little children uh, to the, the kingdom. He spoke to them of the suffering of its king, miracles of healing, uh, right and left, calling people away from what today uh, we would hear as follow your own heart. That's one of the most unbiblical things that you can possibly hear. You know, I know it's really the, the subtext of virtually every Disney movie, but there's virtually nothing more unbiblical, 
follow your own heart. My heart's my trouble to begin with. My heart's what got me into this thing. What I need to do is to give my heart to Jesus and follow him, right? I, I need to turn from being my true self to repenting of myself and being true to him. And all of this culminates with Jesus telling them that he had come to die in Luke 18, 31 to 34. And there's the healing of a blind man that demonstrates that he is indeed the divine and true son of David in 1835 to 43. And then there is a curious conversation with a wee little man named Zacchaeus up in a tree. You remember that little song we would sing in children's church? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he in the first 10 verses of chapter 19. That The point is if salvation could come to the house of a loathsome tax collector like Zacchaeus, what kind of upside-down kingdom are we dealing with here? That's the answer to the first question. Those are the these things that they've been hearing. That's what they've been hearing Jesus teach about and demonstrate. And yet the second question, despite all of this, they still hold on to their expectation that the Messiah would be presidential. He would be impressive with a, a nationalistic zeal that would inspire all Jerusalem as they entered into town in just a few days, ushering in a new Jewish kingdom of political power, military might, and prosperous prestige that would get Rome's boot off of their neck. They would no longer be subject to Caesar or any of the henchmen that he would place uh, over them as pseudo-kings or vassal kings who ultimately were put in place by Rome expected to do the bidding of the emperor. Now, just a little bit of history here as a background to this story. Herod died in 4 BC. His son, Herod Archelaus, who lived from 23 BC to AD 18, immediately started ruling in his father's absence, but he would eventually journey to Rome, hoping to be crowned officially king of Judea in the temple of Apollo, to go into that pagan temple and be crowned by a pagan emperor in a pagan ceremony, the king of Judea. Uh, the problem was that upon arrival, he discovered that members of his own family uh, had presented a rival claimant to the throne in Judea, Herod Antipas. Along with that, there was a delegation of 50 Jews who had traveled to Rome to convince Caesar Augustus that Archelaus was not fit to govern them. After all, there are a few things worse than a tyrannical government, right? Already under Archelaus' rule, which he assumed immediately upon his father's death, he had slaughtered some 3,000 of his own countrymen at the temple when there was a dust-up there. He was cruel and unbending. But despite their opposition, uh, Caesar Augustus eventually exalted Archelaus officially as the king of Judea. And when he returned to Jerusalem, as you might imagine, there was hell to pay for those who had opposed his bid for office. The hands of this king were vengeful and murderous. Now, Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, he lived from somewhere around 80, 37 to 100. An early Jewish historian records in his Jewish antiquities this story. I wish I had time to read the account. I don't, but would you believe me if I told you that about a half a dozen words and phrases in his account in the Jewish antiquities actually appear in Luke's parable in chapter 19. 
We, we see uh, words like uh, to receive a kingdom in antiquity, 17.317, that he was hated, 17.302, that he was uh, sent, uh, 17.300. Uh, a delegation was sent. That delegation is, is also there in 17.300. Uh, he, he wanted to rule as king in book 17.304, and then he was going to slaughter those who opposed him in Jewish antiquity, 17.237. What's the point here? Jesus, uh, some 30 years later, uh, knowing that the painful memory of Archelaus' uh, rule redounded in Jewish consciousness, crafts a parable to make a point about his own kingship. Time was of the essence. They were near Jerusalem. Expectations were high. His disciples then and now needed to know that there would be a providential lay between the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom, between the coming of the king and the second coming of the king, between the already of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom. Now, maybe you've heard um, a familiar statement that the two most important dates in a man's life are the day he was born and the day he discovers why he was born. Now, there's some truth to that. We place importance on those kinds of demarcation of time. Uh, we place an obvious emphasis on birth and death dates. In fact, yesterday uh, was the 50th anniversary of the death of J.R.R. Tolkien, January 3rd, uh, 1892 to September 2nd, 1973. This Tuesday, I'll be conducting the funeral of one of my oldest and very dearest friends, Pastor Michael Shrum, Baptist pastor up in Gallatin, Tennessee. And his obit included his dates, May 21st, 1956, to October 30th, 2023. And as important as these kinds of dates are in our lives, there's a very real sense. And, 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 and don't miss this. This is sort of the operating system that runs underneath this parable. The two most important, po the most, two most important points uh, in history for all of us as believers or that point in history of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ on the one hand, and his physical second coming and clouds of glory. We live between the first and second advents of Christ, between the already of his kingship and the not yet of the consummation of the kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. But the king that they expected was simply a political military messiah who would restore them on a national level to prosperity and prestige among the nations. So Jesus draws upon the story of Archelaus to draw the contrast between the kind of king they expected and the kind of king God exalted. There's a very real sense in which the very next verse, right after this parable in chapter 19, verse 28, we see the kind of king we have. Look at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now you might look at that verse and say, David, how are you getting much out of that verse? That's like a, just a passing historical detail. Why would I say we can see the very kind of king we have in that verse? Well, we see not only the kind of king we have, we see the kind of prophet, priest, and king we have in that one verse. We look closely he said these things. He spoke. That's what a prophet does. He went on despite the danger. That's what a king does. He goes on to protect his own despite the danger. Where did he go? Up to Jerusalem where priests make sacrifice for sins. We cannot understand his kingship apart from his prophetic office of preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. Mark 1, 15. He came to proclaim the Father for us 
We, we read in John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God, uh, the only God at the Father's right side. He has made him known. And that phrase, he has made him known in English, comes from one Greek word. Now, we have Greek scholars among us, Lee Eric and, and Debbie and Jeff. They've been studying some Greek. That one Greek word is expressed by uh, an English phrase. That one Greek word is exagesato. Exagesato. We get our English word exegesis from that. Have you ever heard of the preacher's responsibility to do exegesis with the text, to explain, to unpack the text? Jesus came to exegete the Father, to explain the Father for us. He is our prophet. He came as, as a lowly king. I mean, that's why in this same chapter, the, the very next section, he rides into town on the back of a donkey. Fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9, behold, your king comes lowly on the back of a donkey. Uh, you know, that's why we see Isaiah's prophecy of a king in chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. We'll probably be hearing this passage much in the weeks and months ahead as Advent draws nearer. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom in order to establish it and order it with judgment and with justice from henceforth and forever. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. He is prophet, he is priest, he is king, Francis Turretin, uh, old Reformed theologian who lived from 1623 to 87 said that the munis triplex, the, the Latin phrase for the threefold office of Christ, that the three offices of Christ are the triple cure for our triple sickness. There are three medicines for our threefold sickness. He says we are wayward and rebellious, and so we need a king to reign over us. We are ignorant of the Word of God, so we need a prophet to teach us. We are guilty and full of sin, and we need a priest to cover us. The threefold cure for our threefold sickness is Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king. And yet, this kingly prophecy of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 would in that same prophecy in chapter 52, 13 to 53, 12 tell us, that he would be a suffering servant. In fact, a song of our suffering servant who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For he shall grow up before him like a young plant and as a root out of dry ground has no former comeliness. So we did not desire him. We did not esteem him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom mid hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him. Not surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. A few verses later, verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. I wish we had time just to marinate in that beautiful song of the suffering servant that our, our king would be a king in, in his lowliness. And yet, like a king, he comes out swinging in the gospel of Luke. He comes out swinging against the five things you and I fear the most. Sin, the demonic realm, natural disaster, sickness, even death itself. Jesus shows himself 
powerful over all those things in Luke 4 to 7. And that's because in Luke verses or chapters 1 to 3, something fierce was laid in that feeding trough. That cute little boy in the manger scene came to reign as eternal king. Hebrews 2, 10 to 18 proves it. He came to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of us who through our fear of death were held in life long bondage. But of course, he didn't said things that just weren't presidential. In fact, in John chapter 13, verses 1 to 20, Peter was rather embarrassed of Jesus. You know, Jesus girds himself with a towel and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, you'll not wash my feet. And at first glance, we may think that Peter was being humble. Peter was actually being arrogant. He was embarrassed. You mean I've left everything to follow you and to start this movement with you? We're going to take over, and you've dressed yourself, and you're acting like a servant. And, of course, Jesus says, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part of me. Peter, always quick to repent, then not just my feet, but my head also. But he was embarrassed. Judas, just a few verses later. Chapter 13 of John's Gospel, 21 to 30, had become increasingly unimpressed with this king and his kingdom to the point that Satan entered him and he betrayed Jesus. <laughs> and when it comes to Peter, despite his momentary bravado to the contrary, just a few verses later, Jesus predicts that Peter is going to betray him in verses 36 to 38 of chapter 13 of John's Gospel. Really kind of a bleak picture in John 13. Yet, while he was not the king they expected. He was the king God exalted. We see that in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the point of this story is that though he's not the king they expected, he was the king God exalted. And that king is extravagant. At the two most important points in all our lives, two most defining points of history, the cross and the crown, the death, resurrection, and ascension, and then the return of Jesus. The next parable here tells us about life between those two points. You see, Jesus is the nobleman who went far away to be declared king in John chapter 19, verses 19 to 22, we see when he was crucified that Pilate placed a sign above his head on, on the cross, Yeshua, Yeshua, Hanadzeri Melech HaYudeo, in Latin, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum, in Greek, Jesus Hanadzerios HaBasileus Ton Judean, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Of course, they told him to take the sign down. We have no king but Caesar. And he says, what I've written, I've written. Even through the hand of a pagan king, the kingship of Jesus is declared. It is death. What of his resurrection? In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, we see that Jesus in his resurrection is declared the Son of God in power. You say, well, wasn't he already declared to be the Son at his baptism? Yes, but now there's a new phase of his kingly sonship. He's declared to be the king over death itself. Death no longer has a hold on him nor on you and me. In his ascension, he's declared king. How so? 
Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high in his ascension. You see, Jesus goes into not a pagan earthly temple, but into the very heavenly temple, and he is crowned as king. That's why we read in Hebrews 6, 19 that we have beyond the curtain, beyond the veil, the very inner sanctum of the heavenly temple, an anchor for our soul which tethers us and identifies us. He's king also in his second coming. Revelation 19, 11 to 16, John tells us that he sees the king of kings and the Lord of lords coming, not on a lowly donkey, but on a white stallion. Sometimes I think I'm going to go off in the ditch as I drive down Old Hickory and I go by Steeplechase and all these beautiful horses out there. You know the ones I'm talking about, they're just gorgeous. They're so, they're so majestic. I mean, can you imagine what it is going to be like when the king of kings comes riding in on this stallion proving to us what we know already, that he is indeed king. Between his first and second advents, the king gives minas to his servants. Now, scholars tell us this is about three months' wages. Each of the ten receive the same, one mina each. This is a picture of the grace of saving faith and the calling to know and love the king before a watching and wondering world, a world that is in direct opposition to his kingship. This is not the same thing as the talents in the parable of Matthew 25, 14 to 30, uh, wherein uh, there are unique and special giftings that, that are different uh, given to believers. But in Luke's parables, the servants are all called to know and love and live for the king, joyfully anticipating his return, spreading the good news of the kingdom faithfully. They are to, they are to give themselves over to loving and, and knowing Christ. And all of us, all of us are, are called to that, whatever our unique giftings may, may be. In fact, Luke uses a word here in the Greek, and it only appears one time in the Greek. It's called a hapex legomena. It's a technical term meaning it only appears here and nowhere else. The, the word here is diaprogmai sutanto. It is a word that refers not primarily to economic gain, but to stewardship. And, and Luke uses it here as a metaphor for stewardship in engaging in kingdom life, kingdom living, spreading the fame of the king's name so that those who reject him might taste and see that the Lord is good. And how do we do this? We do this as we pray, as we worship, as we do our work, whatever we set our hands to, as we raise our families, as we live in community with one another, as we tip our servers well at, at the restaurant, as we love our neighbors, those who vote like you do and those who don't vote like you do, as we share the gospel in the ways that we speak up and the way that we show up when there are needs around us. This is similar Right to, to Paul's imagery in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, where he speaks of himself as a builder and others such as Apollos who are also laboring for the kingdom on a gospel foundation. Their work and faithfulness, Paul says, would be assessed in the eschaton. Beloved, the Bible indeed teaches degrees not of salvation, but of reward and stewardship in heaven. I don't have time to unpack that. But Matthew 6, 20, 1 Corinthians 3, 8 to 15, 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. So the first servant uh, steps up and his faithfulness is depicted as a tenfold increase for which he has given stewardship over ten cities. That's so extravagant. The reward is so out of proportion with the, the service that he's given. The second service, there's a fivefold increase 
uh, of, the, of the Mina. And he's given five cities. Again, an extravagant reward, all out of proportion with the service. That's because our king is just so extravagant. That There's a reason why Paul speaks of the riches of God's grace lavished upon us in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, or as he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, I thank God for the inexpressible gift of salvation. So lavish, and that's how they understood the king to be, lavish and extravagant. But the third servant comes with the master's mina, safely tucked away in a handkerchief. This is not a sign of humility. Instead, like Flannery O'Connor's Mr. Head in her short story about racism in the collection of stories A Good Man is Hard to Find, Mr. Head lived his life never knowing what mercy felt like because theretofore he had been too good to need any mercy. In fact, the third servant's excuse for his lack of faithfulness to the king is actually seen in his assessment of the king. You see verse 21, chapter 19? You are worthy of servile fear because you are harsh and you are unfair and you are greedy. In fact, I know you to be a thief. You take what doesn't belong to you. And so the king uses his own words against him to say, in effect, if you really believed that I was so cruel and unjust, you would have at least deposited the mina for interest You see, this is the difference between Peter, who ran straight to the mouth of the empty tomb, even while the sting of his own failure was still tender. And on the other hand, Judas, the betrayer, who turned from mercy to his own way. This may even be an example here in this parable of someone who never actually was saved to begin with, whoever actually knew the king to begin with. We see this explained in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated to receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This text is not teaching that a saved person can lose their salvation. A saved person can no no more lose their salvation than the Savior can lose the saved. It was up to me to keep myself saved, I would lose it. It's not up to me to keep myself saved. Jesus keeps me saved, keeps you saved. But this passage is teaching that there can be those among us who believe at some level that they, that they are saved because maybe they come to church because they like the music or they like the preacher or they, they just like you know, being seen with a certain crowd, but they don't know the tender mercies of Christ. They think that he is unjust. They think that he is cruel. How often are we tempted to fear the rejection of those who reject Christ? We so desperately want to be thought relevant and approved of by those who will ultimately face the unspeakable judgment of Christ. Revelation 14, 10, you know, people will say, you know what makes hell, hell is the absence of God. That is actually patently unbiblical. What makes hell, hell is not the absence of God, but the presence of God in unmitigated wrath and fury 
Revelation 14, verse 10, we read that those who reject Christ will be tormented day and night in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. That should send chills down our spine. You know, we always talk about in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Lucy asks Mr. Beaver about Aslan, is the lion safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who do you think about safe? But he's good. He's the king. And we always emphasize how good Aslan is. But what does it mean that he's not safe? Well, for those of us who are in Christ, that, that Aslan is not safe means that we cannot tame, we cannot domesticate Jesus. But let us not downplay the fact that he is not safe in a very different way for the white witch and all who will follow her. He is not safe in just a few verses later in this same chapter when he cleanses the temple and they could do nothing to stop him because the people knew how good he was and they were hanging on his words, Luke tells us. How often do we fall into thinking that our king is, is cruel, ready to flick us out of his inner circle the minute we screw up? What did the first two servants understand? It was that the master's mina did the work. Your mina produced this. Your mina increased. It was his grace, as Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Or as he says in Colossians 1.29, that he labors with all of God's energy working through him, his grace working mightily within him. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-9, where he says that you and I are jars of clay. We have cracks. We have holes. To ourselves, we are empty. But the treasure of the gospel is given to weak jars of clay like us. It's his grace working in and through us. These servants labored for him in love, knowing how deeply loved they were by him. They knew that the king was not at all the way that the third servant described him. And I wonder, is this what is keeping some of us this morning from living lovingly and loudly for Jesus? Kind of like Elizabeth in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. You know, she had a pretty dour perception of Mr. Darcy, and when they went to his manor at Pemberley, um, they met the housekeeper, Mrs. Reynolds, who described Mr. Darcy this way, he is the best landlord and the best master, she said, that ever lived, not like the wild young men nowadays who think of nothing but themselves. There is not one of his tenants or servants, but what will give him a good name? And Elizabeth realized that she has misjudged Mr. Darcy severely, and she says, in what amiable light does this place him? Thought Elizabeth, what amiable light. Is Jesus amiable to you? Our foremothers and forefathers in the Puritan era loved to speak of the amiableness of Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, who lived from 1703 to 58, would speak of the loveliness of Christ, the excellencies of Christ, the beauty of Christ, of Jesus as being the cream of all our pleasures. Listen to what he said. Christ loved us when there was no loveliness about us to draw his love. There was nothing attractive to be seen in us. All was abominable to his pure eyes, but Christ has infinite loveliness to win and draw our love. He is the brightness of God's glory. He is the bright and morning star in the spiritual firmament. He is more excellent than the angels of heaven. He is amongst them for amiable and divine beauty as the sun is among the stars. In beholding his beauty, the angels do day and night entertain and feast their souls, and in celebrating of it, they do continually employ their 
praises, nor yet have the songs of angels ever declared all the excellency of Jesus Christ, for it is beyond their songs and beyond the thoughts of those bright intelligences to reach it. That blessed society above has been continually employed in this work of meditating on and describing the beauty and amiableness of the Son of God, but they have never yet nor ever will comprehend or fully declare it. His excellency is such that beholding and enjoy it will yield a soul-satisfying delight. There will be more delight and pleasure in one hour than this world with all that it has can offer in 70 years. Is Jesus beautiful to you? I love the old Scottish Presbyterian pastor and theologian Samuel Rutherford who lived from 1600 to 61 who says the love of Christ hath neither brim nor bottom. Beloved, the King is coming and his reward for our faithfulness will be with him, Revelation twenty two twelve. for all who persevere. And the good news is that our perseverance is guaranteed because it doesn't ultimately depend on us. Our perseverance is guaranteed because Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it through the day of completion in Christ Jesus. You see, God causes your salvation, he carries your salvation, and he will complete your salvation. How will we know? How will we know who the true king is? Like Aragorn in Return of the King, of whom uh, Yoreth points out in the houses of healing and says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Aragorn's ability to heal those who were wounded in the battle of uh, Pelennor Fields, especially those suffering from the black breath, fulfilled this prophecy of who the true king would be. Beloved, the hands of our king are healing hands. That's why we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. How can we know he will surely do it? Because the hands of the king are healing hands. Those healing hands still bearing the bleeding wounds of the cross so that you and I would not have hell to pay. Those healing, bleeding hands have spread a table for us in the midst of our enemies, Psalm 23, verse 5, so that we can taste and see that he is good, Psalm 34, verse 8. You see, Jesus was laid in a manger, a feeding trough, because he was given to be food from the beginning. He is food for us now and for weary servants like us on our travel narrative between the already and the not yet, we have an invitation from our king in Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat that which is good. Delight yourself in the richest affair. Incline your ear here that your soul may live.